Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 11. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetedness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. The word of the Lord. Well, uh, I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. It might seem like an obvious question, but it's not for everybody. And the question is this, do you believe in evil? I think in our popular imagination, most people acknowledge that something like evil exists. We see it all around us in violence, war, bloodshed, destruction, um, oppression, domination, victimization, abuse, racism. It takes many forms. But whatever form it takes, uh, it's, it's, it's an assault on people. And if you believe in God, that means it's also an assault on God, because to assault God's creation is to assault God himself. Uh, to borrow a term from the sociologist Philip Reef, it's a death work. And we live in a world full of death works. Death work is any assault on God's creation, not just the people he created, but God himself, an assault on his creation. We live in a world of death works. I think we all imagine that these kinds of things exist. That's not hard. But I think we also have a tendency to imagine that it's not us. That, that death works are things that are perpetrated by certain especially wicked people or certain especially wicked groups of people, but not us. We like to imagine ourselves as being immune from that. But what if we're not? Can we just entertain that question for maybe the next half hour or so? What if we're not immune from the death works? What if we're all participants in these things? One of the most vivid expressions of this that I've ever scene is from the Coen Brothers movie, No Country for Old Men. It's about an aging sheriff named Ed Tom Bell, who uh, goes out to track down a cold-blooded killer 
who's like um, the embodiment of evil. He's, he's a walking death work. And at the beginning of the movie, Sheriff Bell is reflecting on the, uh, the evil that he has to go out and confront. And he, he says this, he says, I was sheriff of this county when I was 25 years old. I always like to, to think about the old timers. I can't help but wonder how they would have operated these times. There's this boy I sent to the electric chair in Huntsville here a while back. My arrest and my testimony. He killed a 14-year-old girl. The paper said it was a crime of passion, but he told me there wasn't any passion to it. He said he'd been planning to kill somebody for about as long as he could remember. Said if they turned him out, he'd do it again. Said he knew he was going to hell. Be there in about 15 minutes. I don't know what to make of that. I sure do don't. It's not that I'm afraid of it. I always knew that you had to be willing to die to even do this job. But I don't want to push my chips forward and go out and meet something I don't understand. A man would have to put his soul at hazard. He'd have to say, okay, I'll be part of this world. Do you hear what he's saying? Sheriff Bell is saying that just to walk out your front door, just, just to participate in this world is to risk being caught in the riptide of death works. You know what a riptide is? It's like a powerful current that just grabs a hold of you and sucks you out to sea. He's saying that just living in this world is to risk getting caught in the riptide of the death works of this world, that, that we're all prone to it. We're, none of us is immune. We're all um, able to, be, uh, to succumb to the riptide of the death works of this world. So here's the question. You know, we're talking about the renewal of this world. But if we're all participants in the death works of this world, then there's no renewal for the world if there's no renewal for us. This passage that we just read is talking about that. In the second half of this letter to the Colossians, Paul is laying out the Christian life for us. He's laying out the Christian experience for us. And it, he's saying it's all about renewal and especially spiritual renewal. So let's begin looking at that. As we look at the rest of this letter over the next few weeks, we're going to begin looking at this topic of spiritual renewal. And it begins this week by just asking two big questions. Why do we need it? And how does the process begin? Why do we need renewal? And how does the process of renewal begin? Okay, first, um, why do we need renewal? Um, we see it especially in, uh, in verse 10. It's pretty clear there. Paul says that to be a Christian is to be a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, Paul is pointing us back to Genesis 1, which says that God created human beings and that he created them in his image. The problem is that that image of God has been distorted and damaged in us. And Paul actually gives us several examples of what that looks like in this um, passage. He gives us a list of death works. So in verse 5, he mentions sexual immorality and impurity, along with greed and materialism. Or if you look down in verse 8, he talks about anger, wrath, malice, slander. Or in verse 11, it's really interesting. You notice how he talks about um, there no longer being any distinction between Greek and Jew or circumcised or uncircumcised and so on. He, he's really talking about ethnic hostility, racial division, class division. That's what he's talking about. These 
categories represent the, the basic foundational categories of our world, sexual relationships, um, economic relationships, interpersonal relationships, social relationships. Paul is saying that the way we do these things in this world is a distortion of the image of God in us. He's saying that, that the way we do these things is evidence of how we've actually had the image of God distorted in us, that these are death works in our lives. But why? Where do these things actually come from? There are two really important words in this passage that we need to understand if we're going to understand what Paul is talking about. And the first one is in verse 5 there. Do you see where it says, evil desire? Evil desire. Now, that word desire that Paul uses is a very important word in the New Testament. The, the Greek word is epithumia. Literally, it means over-desire. Uh, or you could translate it oversized desire or, or maybe even supersized desire. Like, you know how you go through the drive through and they ask you, do you want to supersize that order? This is like, do you want to supersize that desire? That's epithumia. But he also attaches the word evil to it. Now, it's important to understand, Paul is not saying that the things we desire themselves, that those things are evil. He's not talking about normal-sized desires for evil things. Now, we were talking about this last week, so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. But, but the Christian life does not say the world is bad, the things of the world are bad, and we should forget about the world and focus on heaven. No. It says the things of this world are good, that God created them, that he loves them. Paul is not talking about normal-sized desires for bad things. In other words, he's not saying that, that sex is a bad thing or that money is a bad thing or that nationality or, or culture, that, that any of those are bad things. He's not saying that. It, the problem is not the things. The problem is our desires. He's not talking about a normal-sized desire for a bad thing. He's talking about an oversized desire for really good things. That's epithumia. That's what Paul is talking about in this passage, that our desires are distorted. They're misshapen. It's kind of like, you know those funhouse mirrors that when you look at them, they kind of distort what you look like, either all wavy or stretched out? That's what's happened to our desires. They're distorted, they're misshapen, they're twisted all out of shape. And that brings us to the second really important word that Paul is talking about here. Um, our oversized desires are the result of something you see at the very end of verse 5. You notice Paul talks about idolatry. Oversized desires are the result of idolatry in our lives. Now, there's no one better at talking about idolatry than the great uh, pastor and writer in New York City, Tim Keller. He's like Yoda when it comes to explaining idolatry. Um, Tim Keller says that idolatry is taking good things and turning them into ultimate things. Idolatry is taking good things, really good things, and turning them into ultimate things. So Paul is not warning us about sex in this passage. He's warning us about the commodification of sex. In other words, God created sex to exist within the confines, within the covenant of marriage as a way of building community through radical self-giving. So when two people get married, it's a way of saying, I'm giving all of myself to you. I'm giving myself to you emotionally and um, spiritually and intellectually and psychologically and legally and financially and, yes, also physically. 
Uh, marriage is, a, is an act of self-giving that builds up community. Sex outside of marriage is, is a way of tearing down community because what it essentially is is a way of saying um, in, when you're not married to somebody and you're having sex with them, it's basically what you're saying is, I'm going to give myself to you physically, but none of these other ways. We tear ourselves apart when we do that. Even if both people consent, I mean, still essentially, basically what we're saying is, hey, I'll let you use me if you let me use you. It's tearing ourselves apart. It's sexual idolatry. It's a death work. And it, we don't see the ways that it tears our lives apart. But that's what Paul is talking about. Or when he talks about money, he's not warning us against money or material goods. He's warning us against consumerism and a mindset that sees the accumulation of money and stuff as never being limited by the simple concept of enough. I have enough. So consumerism in, in our culture is based on, on the concept of growth for the sake of growth. Growth for the sake of growth. You know what that is? Leslie Newbegin was a great brilliant missionary and uh, one of the most brilliant um, Christian writers of the 20th century. And he talks about this in one of his books. He says that, you know, growth for the, growth of, for the sake of growth, you know what that is? We have a word for that. When it happens in the body, it's called cancer. He says that um, global capitalism is a desperately dangerous um, case of cancer in the body of human society. And by the way, he, he has some pretty um, sharp critiques of socialism as well. So it's not like he's taking focus only on capitalism. Any economic system, when it becomes an idolatry, any economic system can be turned into a death work in our world. Or what about um, national or religious or ethnic or political or religious identities? Those are good things. Paul is not warning us about those things. He's warning us about the idolatry of those things. So what happens is you end up with anger, wrath, malice, slander. You know, think about the online shaming. Think about call-out culture or cancel culture. Think about um, that the ways we attack each other online or on social media. We, we see evidence of this in the world around us or in the political or ethnic or religious or racial divisions in our world. We see the evidence of this around us every single day in our world, don't we? That, that's what Paul is warning us about. Anytime we take a good thing and turn it into an ultimate thing, it results in the distortion of our lives. Our, our desires are distorted. Our desires are out of order, and it always leads to idolatry in our lives. When Paul says that being a Christian means being renewed in the image of our creator, he's pointing us back to Genesis 1 and calling us to remember God's original vision for humanity and to see that, that now we've become distorted, that our desires are out of order and that we're all participating in these death works. We need renewal. And do you understand how urgent this need is? Let me show you, Paul actually shows us how urgent the need for renewal is. And, and really, um, you see it in verse 6. Um, let me ask you a question. How did you feel when we read verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming? If you're like most modern Western secular people, we all kind of squirm a little bit when we hear that read. Yikes, you know, the wrath of God. I thought we left all that kind of stuff behind back in the dark ages. 
But I, you know, I'm a modern person. I don't believe in a God of wrath. I just believe in a God of love. If that's you, I want to invite you to consider something. Um, You know, in our culture today, uh, we have what I would call a rather heightened sense of moral outrage. I don't know if you've noticed this. Um, If you've grown up over the last 10, 15 years, it may not be as apparent to you. I remember back in the 80s and 90s, um, it really was like the golden years of moral relativism where everybody was saying, hey, there's no such thing as right and wrong. There's no such thing as good or evil. Everybody should be free to determine that for themselves. And even though that's still more or less our kind of dominant narrative in our culture, over the last 10 to 15 years especially, we have a heightened sense of justice and moral fervor in our culture, don't we? There's a moral fervor in our culture. I think that's a really good thing, but here's what I want you to consider. When we demand justice for things like sexual predation or financial predation or racial injustice and so on, what does that actually look like? What are we doing? We're calling down wrath. We're calling down, I mean, think about the things I just mentioned with call-out culture and online shaming. If that is an example of, of wrath, I don't know what is, but it's an uncontrolled wrath. Wrath, God's wrath, is a controlled opposition to any assault on his creation. God's wrath is his controlled um, um, opposition to any kind of assault on his creation, any assault any death work, okay? So, you know, we know instinctively that injustice, that evil, that the death works, that those things demand wrath. If we know that instinctively, how much more God? How much more God? I mean, wrath is not the absence of love. Wrath is an expression of love, especially when we understand what God's wrath is, that it's not some cranky outburst or a temper tantrum. It's God's um, commitment to justice. If we feel um, that justice matters, if we're committed to justice, um, God's wrath shows us that God cares infinitely more about justice. It shows us just how desperately we need renewal, that God is adamantly opposed to any assault on his creation, to all of the death works, and that he deeply, passionately um, desires our renewal. That's the first thing we see, that we need renewal. But secondly... Um, I want to spend the rest of our time talking about what does the process of renewal look like? Or at least, how does it begin? Because we're going to talk about this over the next several weeks. What is the process of renewal? There are two big things Paul really begins to lay out for us here. There's an outer break and there's an inner process. There's an outer break and there's an inner process. Okay, so the first thing is there's an outer break. And you see it in verses 9 and 10. Paul says, you've put off the old self with its practices, and you've put on the new self. So becoming a Christian is like putting off an old self and putting on a new self. All right? Now, here's what's important to understand about this. The verbs that Paul uses here, put off and put on, in the original language, these verbs refer to once and for all decisive action. It's like an event that happened in the past. And here's the thing, you know that it happened. Um, So for instance, a lot of times I'll be talking to somebody and they'll say that they're a Christian. And I say, wow, that's great. Tell me more about your relationship with God. And they'll start telling me about how they grew up in church. Now, please understand, 
being in church is a wonderful thing, but being in church and becoming a Christian are two different things. Just being in church does not make you a Christian. Becoming a Christian is a conscious, decisive experience. It's something that happens to you, and you know that it's happened. It's kind of like that old gospel song that Tyler Perry used for the title of his play, I Know I've Been Changed. I know I've been changed. You know, that song, it doesn't just say, I've been changed. It says, I know I've been changed. That's what Paul is talking about. To become a Christian is a conscious, decisive, once and for all event that happens to you, and you know that it's happened to you. And here's the thing that's important about this. You can't consciously reject one way of life without seeing that you're actually participating in it. It's kind of like the way we use the word woke nowadays. You know, to become woke is to become um, conscious of uh, racial and justice issues that you were previously blind to, right? Becoming a Christian, Paul says, is like becoming woke to the reality of all the death works in our world in a way that we weren't aware of them before. And even more than that, it's becoming woke to the reality that we're actually participants in these things. That's what it means, and you see that in our passage. In verse 5, again, Paul, he goes through these lists of death, death works, and then in verse 7, notice what he says, in these two you once walked when you were living in them. He says, you were living in these things. In other words, you were looking for life in sexual freedom. You were looking for life in um, materialism. You were looking for life in things like status or money or success or your performance or recognition. You were looking for life in these things, but now you begun to realize that all the things you thought were a source of life are really nothing more than a source of death. Becoming a Christian always begins with this decisive change. It's an outer break. You look at the world and its death works and you begin to see them for what they really are. So it's kind of like, um, you know, season three of Stranger Things just came out. I haven't seen it yet. Um, and I'm not going to spoil it for you if you haven't seen it either. But, you know, the whole basis of that show is all about people living in what they think is ordinary reality and unbeknownst to them, there's an alternative reality, a parallel world. But it's, it's, it's a dark reality. It's a shadow world. It's called the upside down. And it, it exists in the same space that they occupy. It's right there inhabiting the same space with them, this alternative dark reality. But they can't see it. They don't realize that it exists. To become a Christian means to become awake to the reality of the upside down in our own world. To, to become awake to the dark reality, the shadow world, and to become awake to the reality that we're all participants in it. And until that happens, you know, um, our tendency is, is to look around at the death works in our world and, and to think like this. Well, maybe we'll look at the Me Too movement and we'll say, you know, it's really great that that's happening, but boy, I'm sure glad that I'm not one of those sexual perpetrators. All the while, we're ignoring the, the ways that our own sexual over-desires are distorting our own lives. Or we'll look at, you know, maybe global capitalism or corporate greed, and, and we'll say, you know, that's really awful, but I'm so glad that I'm not one of those financial predators. All the time, ignoring the ways that our own materialistic over-desires are distorting our own lives. You see, 
Becoming a Christian means becoming aware that we all are participants in the death works of this world. And we say, I don't want to live that way anymore. And I'm consciously wanting to make a break with that way of life. And understand one more thing before we move on. Paul, did you notice Paul's talking to Christians? He's saying, you used to live in these things, but he's warning them, you could very easily get sucked right back into them. In fact, you're in danger of it right now. Because the culture we live in, we don't see them. They're they're in the water that we drink, the water that we swim in. Paul is saying that just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you're no longer vulnerable, susceptible to being caught in the riptide of the death works of this world. In fact, the opposite is true. If you're a Christian, you become more aware of just how susceptible and vulnerable you really are to the death works of our world. So first, um, renewal is a process that begins with an outer break, but it continues with an inner process. There's an outer break, but secondly, there's an inner process In other words, if we just stopped right there and said it's an outer break, it'd be easy to think, you know, that becoming a Christian just means, all right, I'm going to stop doing these behaviors, and I'm going to start doing these behaviors, and therefore God is going to love me and and give me a good life. No. Remember what we saw about epithumia, about the oversized desires. The gospel does not change your behaviors only. It changes your behaviors by changing you. It changes your heart. It changes your internal structure of your heart. And so again, we see that in verse 5. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity. Now, those are more external behaviors. But notice he goes on to talk about desire and greed and idolatry. Those are things that happen inside of you. Um, they result in behavior, but, but they begin on the inside. Or look at verse 8. In that list, he actually ends with the behavior, um, the slander and the obscene talk and the blasphemy. But he begins with things inside of you, anger, wrath, malice. Now, here's the point. If you don't find renewal for your heart, then just changing your behavior will never change you. You will never find the renewal that you need for your life by just working really hard on your behavior. What needs to happen is you need to find renewal for your heart, for the epithumia, for your desires. And the way that happens is not by getting rid of your desires, not by ignoring or denying your desires, and certainly not by letting your desires run loose like some uncaged tiger. No, the way renewal happens is by relocating your desires. On the, on the one, the only one who actually has the power to fulfill them, and that's Jesus. So if we look once again at the beginning of the passage, um, verses f- um, one through four are some of the most famous verses in the Bible, and for good reason. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, we've been talking about this pretty much every week. In Colossians, Paul is getting us to to go deeper into the story of the gospel. To counter all the stories that shape our lives. To counter those stories with the story of the gospel. What's the story of the gospel? It's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. When you become a Christian, his story becomes your story. So when you 
Say to Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus, I need renewal. I need it, and I need you to bring that renewal into my life. I trust you. I give my life to you now. When you do that, all of a sudden now, you're in Christ. You're united to him. That means that that his story becomes your story. But what does that mean? It means that, that when God looks at you now, when he looks at you, he sees you as if you had done everything that Jesus Christ has done. So when Jesus died on the cross, it's as if you yourself were the one that went to the cross and died on the cross in order to pay for all of your own sins, all of the ways that you participate in the death works of this world, that you were the one who did that and you get the credit for it. Or when Paul says that that Christ is raised from the dead and now sits at the right hand of God, that means that when God looks at you, he sees you as if you too were sitting there right at his right hand In the Bible, to sit at the right hand of of God is a place of honor and glory and praise. When, When God looks at you, if you're in Christ, that means you have a new position. His story is your story. He looks at you and you get all the glory, honor, and praise that belong to Jesus Christ. One of my favorite illustrations of this comes from the end of The Lord of the Rings. It's about those two little hobbits, Sam and Frodo, and they, they, they're on their quest to destroy the, the evil ring of all power. And when they finish, um, um, they, uh, they're able to complete their task, but not without a lot of pain and hardship and grief and loss and suffering. But, but they destroy the ring, and then at the end of the book, all of the kingdoms of Middle-earth gather together to celebrate this great victory over evil. And in the middle of the celebration, there's a throne. And on the throne is sitting the mighty king Aragorn, the ruler of Middle-earth. And, and he looks out over all these kingdoms that are there to praise him, and he sees the hobbits standing over there, Sam and Frodo, and he gets off his throne, he walks over to them, he takes them by the hand, and he leads them back to his throne sits them on his throne. And then he turns around to all the kingdoms there to praise him and he says, praise them with great praise. And they do. Friends, when you become a Christian, Jesus' story becomes your story. All of the honor, glory, and praise that he deserves, you get the credit for that. That comes into your life. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus got credit for our death works our death works. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. On the cross, Jesus got our wrath so that we could receive all the honor, glory, and praise that he deserves. When you see him doing that for you, that's why Paul says in the first four verses, that's the story that defines you now. That his story is your story. And when you set your mind and your heart and your soul and your desires on that story, when you set your desires on Jesus, all of a sudden everything that's true of him becomes more and more true of you. The more you set your mind on him, your heart on him, your desire on him, the more that all that's true of him, it becomes true of you. It changes you from the inside out. It's a process of renewal, an inner process. It's a uh, slow process. It's a very gradual process. Sometimes you're the last person to see that it's actually happening, but it is happening. And let me give you just a couple of examples of what this might look like as we close out our time together today. First, the gospel changes your motivations. The gospel, when this story becomes your story, it gives you a whole new set of motivations. You know, you can look at two people doing the exact same behavior, but you can't see inside of their heart. They could be doing that same behavior for, the, for totally different reasons. 
So for instance, one of the basic motivations in any human heart is fear. Fear would say, be a good person because you you don't want to be a bad person and get caught. You don't want to get punished. That's fear operating in our lives as a motivation. But pride would be a completely different motivation. Pride says, hey, um, be a good person because you don't want to be like those people over there. You're better than them, right? Fear and pride are different motivations, but they are some of the most common and most powerful motivations that operate in every single human heart. When the gospel gets to work in your life, that process of inner renewal, it it begins to give you a whole different set of motivations. So for instance, it addresses the fear in your life when you see Jesus on the cross dying for you. When you see him taking the wrath that you deserve, and now all the condemnation, there's no more condemnation for you. It's gone. When you see that happening, that just sucks the fear right out of your life because you realize there's no more condemnation for me. Or when you realize that you actually needed Jesus to die for you, that that we are all participants in the death works of this world, and that even the very best things that we do I know this is true of me. Even the very best things that I do are shot through with all kinds of selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed motivations. I mean, not completely, but it's just in there like cancer. When, when you see that you needed Jesus to die for you, you realize that sucks the pride out of you because you know that you needed that. You know you need renewal. Instead of operating out of fear and pride, the gospel begins to give you a whole new set of motivations of love and joy and gratitude. The gospel gives you a whole new set of motivations. But secondly, when Jesus' story becomes your story, it gives you a, a whole new basis for your identity. It's, it's a whole new identity. His story becomes your story. That story defines you now. So that instead of um, looking for your identity in things like money or romance, or family, or success, or status, or performance. And remember, those are all really good things. But instead of looking for your identity in those things, because if something goes wrong with them, what happens to your identity? Oops. Instead of getting your identity from those things, Jesus Christ gives you a whole new identity, beloved child of God. Friends, that is an identity you are no longer defined By what you do, you're defined by what Jesus did. That is an unassailable identity. Failure can't touch an identity like that. Criticism can't touch an identity like that. Condemnation of the world can't touch an identity like that because that identity is not based on you or anything you do. It's based on Jesus and what he's done for you. Nothing can touch it. When that kind of identity gets to work in your life, understand something. That doesn't erase all the other things about you. That doesn't change the fact that uh, all the other things about your life, your nationality, your ethnicity, your culture, uh, maybe your political affiliation, all of those things, it changes you. And understand, this can change the world. If this were to happen to everybody in the world, did you notice the last verse in this passage We talked about it earlier. Paul says that here, he's talking about in in Christian community, in a Christian humanity, he says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. When Paul says there's no more Greek and Jew, those were ethnic racial divisions that existed in that world. He's saying there's no more racial hostility, no more ethnic hostility for a Christian. 
because that thing, that doesn't define you anymore. Or when he says there's no more circumcised or uncircumcised, that was religious divisions that existed in those days. Paul is saying there's no more religious division. You don't look down on people of a different religion. Or I love this one, when he talks about no more barbarians or Scythians. Like Scythians in that day was like the way people would talk about the very worst of the worst. You know, I don't know what, you know, how you guys vote or your political affiliations, but you know, it's like whoever's on the other side, the way we talk about people on the other side, Scythian. That's what that word means. It's, it, you know, ugh. barbarians was like the mild form of that word. Paul is saying, it, when you become a Christian, you may still have political affiliation, cultural affiliation, but those things no longer are your primary identity. It's not that it erases those things, but it lifts you up out of those things so that your identity is no longer based in them. That gives you a whole new love and, and an ability to receive and welcome all the other people of the world, regardless of who they are and what kind of other identities they might have. Friends, do you see how radical this is? His story becomes your story. Can you imagine what our world would look like if this happened to everybody? Has it happened to you? Set your mind and your hearts on the risen Jesus. Let his story become your story. I say this every week. The more the story gets into you, the more the story comes out of you. And we're going to keep looking more next week about even more practical ways to get this story inside of our hearts and our lives. But this week, just ask yourself a couple of questions this week. What are my idols? What are my over-desires? And not just what are the things they focus on, right? What are the deeper motivations that are actually driving my life, driving my over-desires? putting them into over-desire and creating idols in my lives. Consider that and then look to Jesus. Look at him whose death has freed you from death and whose life has given you a new life. Let's pray.